Welcome to the Peter the Water Dog Saves the Planet Peace Podcast. In this episode, episode seven, I will read from W.H. Hudson's book, Birds and Man, chapter one, Birds at Their Best. First, I'd like to ask you a question. Do you have a story about something you've kept and used for a very long time instead of buying something new? Or a story of how you moved away from uber consumption to a more minimalistic life? If so, I'd love to hear about it. Just go to avascoughspeak.com and click contact me to leave me a note and I'll get back to you about your story. Thank you so much. Now let's get on with the birds, shall we? Birds and Man by W.H. Hudson Chapter 1. Birds at Their Best By way of introduction Years ago, in a chapter concerning eyes, in a book of Patagonian memories, I spoke of the unpleasant sensations produced in me by the sight of stuffed birds, not bird skins in the drawers of a cabinet, it will be understood, these being indispensable to the ornithologist and very useful to the larger class of persons who, without being ornithologists, yet take an intelligent interest in birds— the unpleasantness was at the sight of skins stuffed with wool and set up on the legs in imitation of the living bird, sometimes, oh mockery, in their natural surroundings. These surroundings are as a rule constructed or composed of a few handfuls of earth to form the floor of the glass case, sand, rock, clay, chalk, or gravel, whatever the material may be, it invariably has, like all matter out of place, a grimy and depressing appearance. On the floor are planted grasses, sedges, and miniature bushes made of tin or zinc and then dipped in a bucket of green paint. In the chapter referred to, it was said, when the eye closes in death, the bird, except to the naturalist, becomes a mere bundle of dead feathers, crystal globes may be put into the empty sockets, and a bold, life-imitating attitude given to the stuffed specimen but the vitreous orbs shoot forth no lifelike glances. The passion and the life whose fountains are within have vanished, and the best work of the taxidermist, who has given a life to his bastard art, produces in the mind only sensations of irritation and disgust. That, in the last clause, was wrongly writ. It should have been my mind and the minds of those who, knowing living birds intimately as I do, have the same feeling about them. This, then, being my feeling about stuffed birds set up in their natural surroundings, I very naturally avoid the places where they are exhibited. At Brighton, for instance, on many occasions when I visited and stayed in that town, there was no inclination to see the Booth Collection, which is supposed to be an ideal collection of British birds, and we know it was the life work of a zealous ornithologist who was also a wealthy man and who spared no pains to make it perfect of its kind. About eighteen months ago I passed a night in the house of a friend close to the dyke road, and next morning, having a couple of hours to get rid of, I strolled into the museum. It was painfully disappointing, for though no actual pleasure had been expected, 
the distrust experienced was more than I had bargained for. It happened that a short time before I had been watching the living Dartford Wobbler at a time when the sight of this small, elusive creature is loveliest, for not only was the bird in his brightest feathers, but his surroundings were then most perfect. The wind was frankincense and flame. His appearance as I saw him then and on many occasions in the firs flowering season is fully described in a chapter in this book, but on this particular occasion while watching my bird, I saw it in a new and unexpected aspect, and in my surprise and delight I exclaimed mentally, Now I have seen the firs wren at his very best. It was perhaps a very rare thing, one of those effects of light on plumage which are accustomed to see birds that have glossed metallic feathers and more rarely in other kinds. Thus the turtle dove when flying from the spectator with a strong sunlight on its upper plumage, sometimes at a distance of two or three hundred yards, appears of a shining whiteness. I had been watching the birds for a couple of hours, sitting quite still on a tuft of heather among the firs bushes, and at intervals they came to me impelled by curiosity and solicitude, their nests being near, but ever restless, they would never remain more than a few seconds at a time in sight. The prettiest and the boldest was a male, and it was this bird that in the end flew to a bush within twelve yards of where I sat, and perching on a spray about on a level with my eyes, exhibited himself to me in his characteristic manner, the long tail raised, crest erect, crimson eyes sparkling, and throat puffed out with his little scolding notes. But his color was no longer that of the furs wren, seen at a distance the upper plumage always appears slaty black, near at hand it is of a deep slaty brown, now it was dark, sprinkled, or frosted over with a delicate grayish white, the white of oxidized silver, and this rare and beautiful appearance continued for a space of about twenty seconds, but no sooner did he flit to another spray than it vanished, and he was once more the slaty brown little bird with a chestnut red breast. It is unlikely that I shall ever again see the firs wren in this aspect, with a curious splendor wrought by the sunlight in the dark, but semi translucent delicate feathers of his mantle. But its image is in the mind, and with a thousand others equally beautiful, remains to me a permanent possession. As I went in to see the famous Booth collection, a thought of the bird I have just described came into my mind, and glancing around the big long room with shelves crowded with stuffed birds, like the crowded shelves of a shop, to see where the Dartford wobblers were, I went straight to the case and saw a group of them fastened to a furze bush, the specimens twisted by the stuffer into a variety of attitudes. Ancient, dusty, dead little birds, painful to look at, a libel on nature, and an insult to man's intelligence. It was a relief to go from this case to the others, which were not of the same degree of badness, but all, like the furze wrens, were in their natural surroundings, the pebbles, bit of turf, painted leaves, and what not, and finally a view of the wide world beyond, the green earth and the blue sky, all painted on the little square of deal or canvas which formed the back of the glass case. Listening to the talk of other visitors who were making the round of the room, I heard many sincere expressions of admiration. 
they were really pleased and thought it all very wonderful. That is, in fact, the common feeling which most persons express in such places, and assuming that it is sincere, the obvious explanation is that they know no better. They have never properly seen anything in nature, but have looked always with mind and the inner vision preoccupied with other and familiar things, indoor scenes and objects, and scenes described in books. If they had ever looked at wild birds properly, that is to say, emotionally, the images of such sights would have remained in their minds, and with such a standard for comparison, these dreary remnants of dead things set before them as restorations and as semblances of life would have only produced a profoundly depressing effect. We hear of the educational value of such exhibitions, and it may be conceded that they might be made useful to young students of zoology by distributing the specimens over a large area arranged in scattered groups so as to give the rough idea of the relationship existing among its members and of all together to other neighboring groups and to others still further removed. The one advantage of such a plan to the young student would be that it would help them to get rid of the false notion which classification studied in books invariably produces that nature marshals her species in a line or row or her genera in a chain, but no such plan is ever attempted, probably because it would only be for the benefit of about one person and 500 visitors, and the expense would be too great. As things are, these collections help no one, and their effect is confusing, and in many ways injurious to the mind, especially to the young. A multitude of specimens are brought before the sight, each and every one a falsification and degradation of nature, and the impression left is of an assemblage or mob of incongruous forms and of a confusion of colors. The one comfort is that nature, wiser than our master, sets herself against this rude system of overloading the brain. She is kind to her wild children in their intemperance and is able to relieve the congested mind too from this burden. These objects in a museum are not and cannot be viewed emotionally as we view living forms in all nature Hence they do not, and we being what we are cannot register lasting impressions. It needed a long walk on the downs to get myself once more in tune with the outdoor world after that distuning experience, but just before quitting the house in the dyke road, an old memory came to me and gave me some relief, inasmuch as it caused me to smile. It was a memory of a tale of the Age of Fools, which I heard long years ago in the days of my youth. I was in a small riverine port of the Plata River called Ensenada de Baragan, assisting a friend to ship a number of sheep which he had purchased in Buenos Aires and was sending to the Banda Oriental, the little republic on the east side of the great sea-like river. The sheep, numbering about 6,000, were penned at the side of the creek where the small sailing ships were lying close to the bank, and a gang of eight men were engaged to carry the animals on board taking them one by one on their backs over a narrow plank while I stood by keeping count. The men were gauchos, all but one, a short, rather grotesque-looking Portuguese with one eye. This fellow was the life and soul of the gang, and with his jokes and antics kept the others in merry humor. It was an excessively hot day, and at intervals of about an hour, the men would knock off work, and squatting on the muddy bank, 
rest and smoke their cigarettes, and on occasion the funny one-eyed Portuguese would relate some entertaining history. One of these histories was about the Age of Fools and amused me so much that I remember it to this day. It was the history of a man of that remote age who was born out of his time and who grew tired of the monotony of his life, even of the society of his wife, who was no whit wiser than the other inhabitants of the village they lived in. And at last he resolved to go forth and see the world, and bidding his wife and friends farewell, he set out on his travels. He traveled far and met with many strange and entertaining adventures, which I must be pardoned for not relating, as this is not a storybook. In the end, he returned safe and sound to his home, a much richer man than when he started, and opening his pack, he spread out before his wife an immense number of gold coins with scores of precious stones and trinkets of the greatest value. At the sight of this glittering treasure, she uttered a great scream of joy and jumping up, rushed from the room. Seeing that she did not return, he went to look for her, and after some searching discovered that she had rushed down to the wine cellar and knocking open a large cask of wine, had jumped into it and drowned herself of pure joy. Thus happily ended his adventures, concluded the one-eyed cynic, and they all got up and resumed their work of carrying sheep to the boat. It was one of the adventures met with by the man of the tale in his travels that came into my mind when I was in the Booth Museum and caused me to smile. In his wanderings in a thinly settled district, he arrived in a village where, passing by the church, his attention was attracted by a curious spectacle. The church was a big building with a rounded roof and great blank windowless walls, and the only door he could see was no larger than the door of a cottage. From this door, as he looked, a small old man came out with a large empty sack in his hands. He was very old, bowed, and bent with infirmities, and his long hair and beard were white as snow. Toddling out to the middle of the churchyard, he stood still, and grasping the empty sack by its top, held it open between his outstretched arms for a space of about five minutes, then with a sudden movement of his hands he closed the sack's mouth, and still grasping it tightly, hurried back to the church as fast as his stiff joints would let him, and disappeared within the door. By and by he came forth again and repeated the performance, and then again, until the traveler approached and asked him what he was doing. "'I am lighting the church,' said the old man, and he then went on to explain that it was a large and fine church full of rich ornaments, but very dark inside, so dark that when people came to service the greatest confusion prevailed, and they could not see each other or the priest, nor the priest them. It had always been so,' he continued." and it was a great mystery. He had been engaged by the fathers of the village a long time back when he was a young man to carry sunlight in to light the interior. But though he had grown old at his task and had carried in many, many thousands of sackfuls of sunlight every year, it still remained dark, and no one could say why it was so. It is not necessary to relate the sequel. The reader knows by now that in the end the dark church was filled with light that the traveler was feasted and honored by all the people of the village and that he left them loaded with gifts. Parables of this kind as a rule can have no moral or hidden meaning in an age so enlightened as this, yet oddly enough we do find among us 
a delusion resembling that of the villagers who thought they could convey sunshine in a sack to light their dark church. It is one of a group or family of indoor delusions and illusions which Mr. Sully has not mentioned in his book on that fascinating subject. One example of the particular delusion I have been speaking of, in which it is seen in its crudest form, may be given here. To be continued. Thank you for joining me for the Pedro the Water Dog Peace Podcast. Until next time, sit with yourself in silence every day. That self with a capital S. We are all scholars of peace. Peace and love to you all. Podcast music is Dalai Lama Riding a Bike by Javier Peque Rodriguez. A link to his music on Spotify and Bandcamp are in the show notes. Find W.H. Hudson's Birds and Man on Gutenberg.org. Support messages of peace in the planet by joining my Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee per month at Patreon.com. Just search Avis Kalfsbeck or Pedro the Water Dog to find me. Pedro the Water Dog Saves the Planet books 1 through 5 are available at all your favorite online bookstores or at avaskalfsbeck.com. Book One, One More Year is available as an audiobook on all the audiobook sites with the other books coming soon to audio. If you enjoyed this episode or are at least curious about the future ones, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you again. Listen for the peace.